Well, good morning, church. It's a good day to be with you to worship the Lord as it is every Sunday. This day is a special day as we get to praise the Lord uh, with intentionality. Not only is it Palm Sunday, as Graham said earlier, but it is uh, time to consider the end of Romans 11 and uh, what timing the Lord had for us in uh, the, the preaching of the end of Romans 11, verse 33 through 36, and Palm Sunday as they uh, convene together. So I'm excited about it. I want to read it and then uh, consider it together this morning. So if you have a Bible, let's open up to Romans chapter 11. Uh, let's consider these few short verses. Romans 11, verse 33. If you have a Bible, I hope you will turn there. If you don't have one, there should be one near you. It's on or near page 891. 891 on that Bible there. Romans 11, verse 33. Paul concludes this section of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me just once more? Father, would you help us to see how worthy you are this morning once again? And Lord, might you stir up in our hearts for us who have believed in you by the Holy Spirit to respond in praise and thankfulness and worship as we leave this place like we never have before. And God, I pray for those who have yet to believe in Your very own Son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead. God, I pray that they would praise You for the first time as their Savior. God, help us as we hear. Help me as I speak. Uh, may people remember You when they leave this morning, not me. For you alone are due all honor and all glory. We pray and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want, wonder if you uh, have been to a concert recently, uh, or maybe you can think back to your favorite concert, or uh, if concerts aren't your thing, then maybe sporting event. You've been to a sporting event and uh, your team won, or the concert concluded, at the end there's always a, or often, if deserved, a standing ovation, a praise, a, a cheering, a, uh, a loud ruckus. If you were watching the, the soccer game last night as my wife and I just turned on the TV and that was on between both of the LA, we don't watch soccer often, but we just turned the TV on, that was the channel it was on. In the last few seconds, uh, I don't even know the, the L.A. teams. One of the L.A. teams tied it up with 45 seconds left. 
And then it was reviewed and taken away. And there was, at one minute, half the stadium praising and just screaming and cheering and yelling. And then as soon as the ref said, the other whole half started to praise and cheer, and this I started to, to boo. Uh, or at a concert, you, you, you cheer and you applaud and you uh, whistle and, and, and thank them for, for these things. And, and that, some of that is rightly due. We, we are thanking them, praising them for the gifts that they have and using them in this way and this, that, or the other. Um, but how much more so? How much more so ought we to praise the Lord and to give thanks to the Lord and to make His name known more than a sports team or more than a, a band or an artist? Uh, and yet, I wonder if someone were comparing um, our praise on Sunday mornings and our responses to the Lord throughout the week to our response to uh, the end of a, a concert or the end of a game, would they compare? Would they be able to tell that we care more about the Lord and the things of the Lord than the things of the team or the things of the, the band? I, I want us to realize, maybe simply remember this morning, uh, that the only right response to the Lord is praise. The only right response to the Lord, as Paul has so clearly laid out for us in 11 chapters, is praise. For 11 chapters in Romans, Paul has been uh, laying out such, uh, such great truths about who God is, um, really such humbling truths about who we are. The first three verses, three chapters um, left us with really nothing good to think about ourselves. For we are all sinful, born into sin. No one has done good. No, not one. But he went beyond that and didn't just leave it there. In in chapters 4 and 5, he uh, showed us that we could be justified with God through faith in Jesus Christ, even as sinners. We can enjoy peace with God since Christ died in our place. He went beyond that in chapters 6 through 8 and told us how then we ought to live. If we've been made at peace with God, if we've been justified, he told us that we ought to live dead to sin, but alive to God, and that we ought to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, since God works all things together for the good of those who love him, including our salvation from beginning to end. And then in Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul laid out God's history of salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile. And we are all grafted into God's tree of faith. None of us deserving it, but it all coming from the merciful hand of God. And just before he goes into the more practical uh, aspect of living out our faith, in Romans 12 through the end of the book in chapter 16, he, he pauses for these, first, or, or these few verses and just praises God. He pauses and, and gives the Lord the rightly honor and glory that He is due and, and just praises Him. 
uh, it's almost as if he began singing a song at the end of this chapter in chapter 11. And so it is neat that we are here on Palm Sunday, uh, a day that is, uh, has been remembered uh, for 2,000 years as the, the Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the last week of His life, the last week before His crucifixion. And as He was coming into Jerusalem, many of His followers, uh, yes, they took palms and they took their cloaks. And, and after Jesus uh, fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but Palm Sunday was a, a, a promise <laughs> a prediction of, of what would come from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Just consider the praise that, um, that the Lord uh, promised would come in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Listen, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so it is beautiful that all four of the Gospel writers record that moment in history when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem telling two of His disciples to go get the donkey and to tell the owner of the donkey that the Lord has need of it and to bring it to him. And as Jesus mounted that donkey and rode into Jerusalem, Luke records it this way. I thought this, uh, this account of the Gospels would be most helpful for us this morning. And as he rode along, being on that donkey, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Same word from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Remember that. All the mighty works they had seen. Saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the heights. Uh, Last year, I was reading through a, a church history book, and um, Sinclair Ferguson wrote this book, and at the end of each of the centuries, he added a, a poem that was written during that century, uh, or a song, a hymn of, of some sort, written during that century. Uh, and I put a note to come back to it this week for Palm Sunday, because there was one that was written in the 800s by Theodore of Orleans. Not New Orleans, James, but Orleans. Uh, Theodore was the bishop of Orleans under Charlemagne, but would later be imprisoned under Louis the Pious. And while in prison, he wrote, Gloria, loss et honor. All glory, laud, and honor for Palm Sunday. He wrote his own doxology in reference to Jesus' triumphal entry. Listen to this praise. This, this wasn't just praise in the Old Testament in Zechariah promise. This wasn't just praise in the times of Jesus on Palm Sunday. This has continued throughout the centuries 
In 8.20, Theodoph writes this, All glory, laud, and honor to you, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. You are the King of Israel and David's royal son, now in the Lord's name coming, the King and Blessed One. The company of angels is praising you on high, and we with all creation in chorus make reply. The people of the Hebrews, with palms before you went, our praise and prayer and anthems before you we present. To you before your passion, they sang their hymns of praise. To you now high exalted, our melody we raise. As you received their praises, accept the prayers we bring. For you delight in goodness, O good and gracious King. And so here we are, 1,200 years after Theodoph praised the Lord for who he was and what he had done. We too are praising the Lord in song, praising the Lord in word, uh, praising the Lord as we leave this place in our lives and in our, in our actions. And so let's look at this Scripture together. Consider how uh, and why we ought to praise the Lord. Uh, again, this is the only right response to the Lord for His good and gracious and merciful salvation. Praise. Praise is the only response, right response. And we ought to praise God first and foremost for His riches and wisdom. Praise God for His riches and wisdom. We see this in verse 33. This short passage, it begins with two exclamations and then two questions. Two exclamation points and then two questions before concluding in, in the, the final benediction in verse 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Uh, this, this word depth might bring to mind... Uh, in the midst of Ephesians, uh, Paul's prayer says, Oh, that you would know what is the height and what is the depth, what is the width and the breadth of the love of Christ. Uh, Paul expanded it there in Ephesians, but here he, he simply just says, Oh, the depths of the riches. And, and here you could think of the depths of of the oceans, and, and yet even still, if you were to travel there, that wouldn't even be the depths of the earth. Uh, you could talk about uh, looking out or even traveling to the depths of the universe, and, and yet as far as we've made it, we still haven't even touched the surface. And, and, and no matter what sort of measurement you could find in, in depth, Paul is saying the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the Lord are far greater. There's no measurement for the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. There's no stick. There's no tape. There's nothing that can measure the, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the Lord. Let's look at the riches. Let's consider the riches. And, and let's just consider this morning some of what Paul has already told us in the book of Romans. The riches 
of God have been on display throughout Romans. We could flip back to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans 2, 4, where Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul mentions the riches of God's kindness is not meant to allow us to continue on as we had been going earlier, but is meant to lead us to repentance, to turn and to go another way. And I think Paul ultimately would say that is the way of, of praise, the way of worship, the way of repentance and faith in Jesus. Or Romans chapter 9, verse 23 speaking about His riches. I want to start in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known, listen, the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The Lord has endured much to make known the riches of his glory to us. And aren't we thankful? Oh, the depths of the riches. Consider the, the depths uh, of, of the Lord's glory and all that he has endured to, to make it known to us. Or Romans 10:12. Romans 10.12 speaks of the riches of God. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Listen. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so those riches of kindness, that riches of glory, the depths of the riches of God, Paul made sure he made known to his readers, made sure that he made known to us that those riches are available. He will bestow them on all who call on His name, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That salvation is the riches of the Lord. It's the greatest one of the riches of the Lord. We need to consider that. Oh, the depth of the salvation of the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches of the Lord. Uh, we could even consider in our own Bible reading this, uh, in this season. We've been reading through 1 Kings. We've been reading about Solomon. You've been reading about all of the wealth that he store that, that the Lord gave him and that he had stored up. Um, been reading about him building a house for the Lord for seven years and then spending another 13 years to build a house for himself, which is a whole other sermon in and of itself of why it took twice as long to build himself a house than him a house. But his riches are on display. But they're, they have nothing in comparison to the riches of the Lord. Or it made me think of the depth of the riches in, in my slow but faithful reading of Lord of the Rings and coming upon certain moments of, 
uh, being inside dungeons with tons and tons of piles of treasures and riches and uh, things like that. And yet, even that type of imagery uh, being used as good and great as it is has nothing to uh, compare to the riches of the Lord. We could uh, consider this on and on and on, but the riches of the Lord have no depth. They are immeasurable. But so is God's wisdom. God's wisdom and knowledge, I think, are speaking about the same thing here. And in the book of Romans, what Paul has really been pointing out is the fact that we are without wisdom and knowledge. Romans chapter 1, verse 22, speaks about humanity. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. Paul lays out very clearly that, uh, that we are without wisdom. We claim to be wise. And we could even think about what we talked about last week in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that humanity lacks true wisdom, and yet we claim to be wise, or we think we're wise in our own sight. But Paul will go on a little bit later in Romans, and this I know you've heard week after week after week if you've gathered with us, at the very end of Romans, in the benediction. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. You say it every week. To the only wise God be glory forevermore. He is the only wise one. We may claim to be wise. You may claim to be wise in your own sight or think that you're wise in your own sight, but you have nothing on the Lord. Oh, the depths of His wisdom and His knowledge. The Lord has all wisdom and all knowledge. And Paul, it seems as if he wants to tease that out in in other ways, and in other words describing this, this, uh, this depth of riches and depth of wisdom. And so secondly, I want you to note this. Not only are we to praise Him for His riches and His wisdom, but we're to praise Him for His judgments and his ways. We're to praise him for his judgments and his ways. The second exclamation point says, How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Let's just consider his unsearchable judgments. If the first riches and wisdom were described as being immeasurable, here he he gives us this helpful uh, adjective that they are un- his judgments are unsearchable. They're so unsearchable. We could say it that way. Uh, it sounds like a question, doesn't it? How unsearchable are his judgments? And how un- inscrutable his ways? But Paul is writing a statement of exclamation. And so you could read it this way. His judgments are so unsearchable and His ways are so inscrutable. We can't search His judgment. Paul's already said in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, 
is there injustice on God's part? To which Paul replied, by no means. God is God and we are not. Who are we to judge? And even if we tried, we couldn't judge him rightly since his judgments and justice are unsearchable. Think about it this way. We give just judgment based on what we know. A judge or a jury pronounce judgment on what they know, but their knowledge is limited to the evidence and facts that were presented in course. Or parents, you pronounce judgment on your kids based on the knowledge that you have. Yes, knowledge of the event that happened in your midst, but some of us likely take in the history of events that have happened uh, up to that point. But even the history of, those, of, uh, uh, of life with those kids is limited. Uh, that's not the case with the Lord. His knowledge is immeasurable, as we just talked about. He has no limit to his knowledge. Therefore, his judgment has no limit either. It's always just. It's always perfect. God is not bound by time, space, uh, or vision. He knows all that happens since the beginning till the end. He knows all that happens in every place and everywhere. He knows not only what happens on the outside, which is what a judge and a jury and a parent can look at, but he knows what happened on the inside of man's heart. And the Lord Himself is pure, is holy, is right, and therefore His judgments will be pure and holy and right. They will be just. His judgments are so unsearchable. But not only that, His ways are inscrutable. When we judge one another as justly as we can, we're often judging for something that we too have done in the past. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. Therefore, Paul says, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. When the Lord judges us because of our sin, it rightly falls on us. And even as good of a judge as we may be, judge, jury, parent, teacher, uh, boss, whatever it may be, we're often judging for something that we have been judged, judged for ourselves in the past. Some, we're often condemning someone, someone for something that we have done in the past, but that's not the case with God. And therefore, His ways are inscrutable. You know what that word means? It means that we can't scrute them. Again, here, I'm showing my knowledge here. You can't scrute the Lord's ways. Scrute in Latin does mean search. You cannot search. 
You cannot decipher. You cannot fully understand the Lord's ways. He is omniscient in His knowledge and in His understanding. It's, it's uh, the way that Isaiah, um, or that God spoke in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 through 9, when God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, here's the depth again. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The Lord's unsearchable judgments and unscrutable ways are to be praised. They are to be worshipped. He is to be high and lifted up. We are to be put in our place, humbled, um, to give Him all the praise and credit that He is due. But Paul goes on. Having given us two exclamation points, he now gives us two question marks. And he in this song of praise at the end of Romans 11, he goes back to his Bible, which would have been the Old Testament, and he begins to sing Scripture. One of the things I love about our church from very early on, uh, we began adding Scripture references, and you saw them this morning. Scripture references uh, and, and, and Scripture written below the verse or the chorus of the songs that we were singing to show you, um, yes, sometimes our worship pastor uh, writes a song and we sing it, but they are founded and based, and oftentimes we are simply singing Scripture, which is why so many of you love that song that we sing uh, together as a church from Ephesians chapter 2. Two, straight Scripture from verse 1 to 10. Here, Paul goes to his Bible. And as the refrain and, and chorus maybe for his song, he uh, inserts two uh, familiar Scriptures. One from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, aiming to um, highlight these same aspects uh, and reasons to praise the Lord. So thirdly, note here that he, we ought to praise Him for His counsel and credit. His counsel and credit. Isaiah 40.13 gets at the idea of His counsel where Paul quotes that one verse, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? In thinking about those unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways and the depths of his riches and wisdom. He quotes from Isaiah and quoting one verse brings to mind this entire section of Scripture where in that section of Isaiah it begins with praise. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 and 10, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. 
Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. But then Isaiah will go on to question mankind and to describe God for Israel. In verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path, that is the ways, of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Here again, we see Isaiah questioning mankind and describing the greatness of our God. And then Isaiah would follow that up in verse 18, Isaiah 40, 18, to say, To whom then will you compare God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? In fact, God will go on Himself in verse 25 of the same chapter to ask Himself, to whom then will you compare Me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One? Who or what can you compare to our God? Consider for a second, what in this past week have brought you joy? Have brought, you, uh, brought your lips to thankfulness? What in this past year have you given more attention to than, than the Lord? And yet, consider those things. Whether it's your health, whether it's a job, whether it's the Lord's provision, whether it's the Lord's direction, uh, whatever it may be, uh, all of that is to be turned in thanks and praise to God. For none of those things in and of themselves are worthy of our praise, and all of those things were given, us, given to us by the Lord. W- what is there in all of your life that is able to compare to the Lord? Our spouse can't compare to the Lord. Our children can't compare to the Lord. Our future can't compare to the Lord. Nothing that we have in this life or on this earth is going to be able to compare to the Lord. Paul wants us to know that so that we'll turn in praise to the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He quotes another verse, this time from Job chapter 41, verse 11. We see this quoted in Romans 11.35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Again, from Job chapter 41, verse 11. But this one single verse brings to mind this entire section of Scripture. And towards the end of the book of Job, again, 
as a reminder or a uh, for the fir- to, to know for the first time, Job is a book in the Old Testament. Job was a, a man who's described as a, a righteous man, a man of faith, and yet the, the Lord allowed him to experience suffering and sacrifice uh, for a season, and yet the, uh, Job remained faithful to the Lord, trusting Him in the good and the bad, uh, famously remarking that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet at the end of Job, after Job and the Lord have had conversations, and after Job and his friends have had conversations, God challenges Job out of a whirlwind. And He says in Job 40 and in verse 7, "...dress for action like a man." I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? God asked Job. And can you thunder with a voice like His? Then God questions whether Job can tame the behemoth and the leviathan. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Obviously things Job couldn't do, but the Lord very much could do. Um, And after a chapter and a half then of God's questioning, how does Job respond to the Lord? How does Job respond to God's greatness and mankind's weakness at the very end uh, of that section? This is in Job 42, in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours is thwarted. Then Job quotes God from earlier in the book of Job in chapter 38, verse 2, when God said, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job responds, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. (laughs) Essentially, Job is saying, Woe is me, God. I'm sorry. I uttered things I never should have uttered. I did things I never should have done. And I see now your greatness more rightly. I see my weakness uh, more rightly. He quotes God again from chapter 38, verse 3, where God said to Job, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then in verse 5 of chapter 42, Job says, I have heard, uh, I had, let me me say it again, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the right response to a holy God in recognition of our sinfulness. 
That's the right response. Repentance. Woe is me. God, only you are to be praised. You are the only good and righteous God. Job understood it rightly. Which is why he said in Romans chapter 11, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You can't give someone something that's already theirs. You can't give someone something that's already theirs. Kids, look at me for a second. I want you to imagine you having a birthday party and all your friends came over and one of your friends forgot a present. So he goes to your room, opens up your closet, rummages through and finds something that he thinks you'll like or maybe have forgotten about, puts it in your pillowcase and brings it out and puts it with all the other presents, only for you to open it later and say, did you get this from my closet? And that's a silly illustration, but your parents and I do this a lot with the Lord. We think that our gifts to the Lord are giving Him something that's not already His. Oh, my, my tithes and my offerings, Lord, they're going to do you they're going to make you so proud. When in reality, those gifts and those offerings are to be done out of a heart of worship and thankfulness and gratefulness to Him. And without that, they're nothing. They're nothing. He doesn't need them. Um, we, we can do this with a whole sort of thing, which is why I love the, even the order of this, the wording of this verse quoted from Job who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Obviously, we, we can't give uh, a gift to the Lord. He, everything is already his. There's no need to be repaid. On the, on the other side of that, um, this is the truth about God. He's already given us a gift. He's already given us the, the greatest gift possible, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, and through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, through repentance and faith, we've already been given the greatest gift. And so, therefore, the Lord is our creditor, if you will. We are in debt to Him. Not in the sense that we can pay Him back to earn our salvation. No, in the sense of what we saw back in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. In, in speaking about the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to to the flesh, but he would go on to say, but to live by the Spirit. The Lord has already given us the gift of God's grace and mercy, the gift of His very own Son. As we've repented and believed in Him, we, we can't give Him anything back that's already His, but what we can give Him is praise. What we can give Him is worship. And we are to 
live as, as debtors in that sense. We once were debtors to God because of our sin, and it was a debt that we could not pay ourselves, which is why He sent Jesus Christ. But now we live debtors on the other side of that, aiming to live our entire lives in praise and worship to the Lord. And so I think that's important for us to remember as we, can, as we consider some of these reasons why we are to praise the Lord. We are to praise Him for His counsel, as Paul noted to us from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, but also His credit, His credit that He has given to us, first and foremost, in His very own Son, Jesus Christ. And we are then to live as debtors to Him, living our lives in praise and worship to Him. Well, then Paul ends in verse 36 with this concluding statement that also gives us a a reason to praise Him where he says in the first part of verse 36 that we ought to note we ought to praise Him for His creation and new creation. Consider it in verse 36 where he says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Now, this is most definitely speaking uh, what Paul said over in Colossians chapter 1, something very similar to this, specifically regarding God being Creator. Uh, And as Creator, uh, everything is from Him and through Him and to Him. Paul says it in more detail in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created. Listen, through Him and for Him. So we've got by Him, through Him, and for Him were all things created. Thus, He ought to be praised as Creator and Sustainer of everyone and everything. But not only is He to be praised as Creator and for His creation, this comes not on the heels of a discussion or a sermon about creation. It comes on the heels of 11 chapters of a sermon on salvation, God's new creation. And so if it is true that um, by Him and through Him and for Him was all creation, it is also true that by Him and through Him and for Him came this new creation, this new birth, what it means to be born again. As Paul has detailed our salvation by grace through faith, uh, as Paul has described sinful humanity receiving the merciful hand of God, uh, Paul concludes with praise saying, From Him, yes, 
comes all of creation and he is to be praised from that, but from him comes salvation. And through him comes our salvation. For apart from Jesus, leaving heaven and coming to earth and taking on flesh to become the God-man, Apart from Jesus living a perfect and sinless life, apart from Jesus um, displaying that he was both God and man with signs and miracles attesting to what he was saying was true, apart from Jesus um, receiving the praise of those followers on Palm Sunday and those hosannas, and yet at the same time receiving death at their hands a week later, we wouldn't experience salvation. Apart from Jesus being buried in a tomb and rising from the dead by His own hand and by the hand of God, conquering sin and death and offering life to all who repent and believe, we would not be able to enjoy salvation. Salvation is from Jesus, but it is also through Jesus. For Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is from him. Salvation is through him. And salvation is to him. You were not, Christian, the the end means of God's salvation. You were not the end goal of God's salvation. Paul tells us what the end goal of God's salvation was in the following sentence. To Him be glory forever. Amen. To Him be glory forever. Amen. We worship a God that has that salvation is not only from and that salvation is not only through, but salvation is to. Jesus is bigger than our salvation. Salvation is the means by which he showed us his greatness. And if you're not a Christian, there are ways for you to see and experience the goodness and the greatness of God in this world when you look at creation. And when you experience the common graces in life, when you enjoy health, when you enjoy beauty, when you enjoy the Lord's provision, those can point you to the Lord. But as Christians, we know that those things have nothing uh, in comparison to the goodness and greatness that we have seen, as uh, Job said. He had heard about it but he had finally seen it. Those things that we see in this world cannot compare to what we have experienced in our heart when we have experienced the forgiveness of sins, when we have experienced and realized that Jesus um, came to die in our place and to take our punishment for our sins. And this is why he deserves all praise. And Paul ends with, to him be glory forever. Amen. I was impacted greatly by Psalm 115 earlier in ministry before we started the Fields Church. And I 
ended up having a, a parent of one of the teenagers in our student ministry paint Psalm 115.1 uh, on the wall of my office as a regular and constant reminder. Because it's so easy, not only for me as a, a pastor and a minister, but for all of us, just uh, as Christians, but even beyond that, as just a part of humanity, to uh, want to take the honor and the glory for certain things in this life, for uh, the attention to be placed on us. And yet the psalmist reminds us, uh, like Paul reminds us, which tells us that it wasn't something that originated in Paul. It wasn't even something that originated in David. This was something that originated in the Lord Himself when the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what's been on display throughout all of Romans 9 through 11. This is why Paul pauses in these few verses to praise the Lord in song, not only in his own words, but also in the words of Scripture, looking back to the Old Testament. This is why people uh, gathered around Jesus as He was coming into Jerusalem to praise Him and to shout, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Lord! Praise be to Him. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is what we do this very Sunday morning uh, as we have sung song after song and read Scripture after Scripture of the Lord being worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. We, as humanity, being at the pinnacle of all of creation, uh, though sinful as we are, being able to turn to the Lord and praise Him, for He has saved us, for He has sent His one and only Son for us. And we want to do that well. We want to do that well together as a church. And so consider these truths, these reasons why we ought to praise the Lord as we get ready in a moment to sing. Consider these truths as you sing each verse and each chorus. May our praise together as God's church here this morning uh, resound more than it might have at that concert that we thought about earlier or that game we watched or will watch in the future. If someone began walking through the YMCA and looked through that glass wall over there, would they see a people who were overjoyed, rejoicing because of how great our God is and how great His salvation for us is. Uh, I hope so. And if you're here uh, this morning, you've yet to experience the joy of the Lord, the forgiveness of sin, uh, I urge you to do as many of us have in this room. Repent of your sins uh, as Job repented of his sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation is from Him and through Him, and it's to Him. And then stand for the first time ever in your life 
and praise God for the first time as your Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, may we maybe being reminded, maybe being taught of how good and great you are again, may we stand together as your church and praise you with louder voices, with fuller hearts, with open hands willing to lay out all that you have already given to us in this life to be used for your name's sake during our years here on this earth. God, I pray that if someone were to walk by and look into our worship gathering, they would see a people full of joy, praising you uh, with hands lifted in honor and praise to you. But God, I pray that wouldn't stop when we finish singing this morning. But as we go out this week to be the church in the world, people would listen to us. People would look at us. They would hear something different. They would see something different in us, a life lived in worship to you, which is where Paul is taking us in Romans chapter 12. God, may this uh, be the fuel for living a life in debt to you, in praise and worship to you, for only you are due praise and honor and glory. Help us do that very thing, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.